I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our tiny tower. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Today we are going to be talking about the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. And why Putin? He's absolutely fascinating to me. And the primary reason is this. If you go back 22 years, Putin was nobody. Go look at Vladimir Putin in 1995 and you'll see a 43-year-old unemployed bureaucrat. He had a totally unremarkable career a pretty unremarkable family. He even looked unremarkable. He was trim and standing about five foot seven and slightly balding. And then skip forward four years and he was the president of Russia. Fast forward to now and he's been in charge of Russia for 17 years. He exercises absolute control over the entire country. He's reestablished Russia as a geopolitical force to be reckoned with. And he's a multi-billionaire who might be the richest man on the planet. And so his life is really compelling because he was clearly not born great. Nothing about his early life and career makes you say, man, that guy was destined for greatness. Instead, you look at it and a voice in the back of your head says, yeah, I think I could do that. There isn't anything too special or difficult about what he does early in his career. Throughout his life, you see Putin use some of the same exact tactics and strategies that other people on this podcast have used. Um, he's not nearly the genius that Steve Jobs or Napoleon Bonaparte were, but I love that because in some ways it proves the hypothesis of this podcast, which is that you can learn to be great. You can implement these strategies and use them effectively without having an IQ of 180 or whatever. Now, none of that is to say that I think Vladimir Putin is a good or admirable guy. He has taken Russia backwards in terms of human rights and civil liberties, free speech and all of that. Uh, dissenters and political opponents who criticize him have a way of ending up dead. And in fact, I originally conceived of this episode as a Halloween episode. So when I say Vladimir Putin has achieved greatness, I mean he has accumulated power. He's a decisive actor on the global stage. Greatness is not an extension of goodness, at least not in the way we're using the word right now. Vladimir Putin is unquestionably one of the great men of our time, but that doesn't mean he's a good or a decent one. I think if you look at his biography, he's clearly not. Having said all that, before we launch into his biography, I want to go over a couple of notes. The first is to note that this podcast is slightly different from the others that I've done in that I am covering a living person. This is an exception, and my intention is to continue to focus on historical figures. Um, but let me know what you think. We could do more of this if you like it. So tweet me at HTTOTW or email me at HTTOTW at gmail.com. Uh, the second note before we get started is I want to note my sources. The two books I relied on most heavily was, the first was The New Tsar, The Rise and Reign of Vladimir Putin by Stephen Lee Myers. And the second is called The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin by Masha Gessen. Okay, so having gotten that out of the way, let's go back to the beginning. Vladimir Putin was born in 1952 in St. Petersburg at a time when the city had been totally devastated by World War II. And in, I think in order to understand Putin, you have to understand the city he came from. St. Petersburg was a really tough working class city after the war. Uh, one quick sidebar, at the time that Putin was born and 
growing up and for most of his life, the city was known as Leningrad. That was the name given it back in 1924 by the communist government. But historically, it had been known as St. Petersburg. And after the Soviet Union fell, it became known as St. Petersburg again. And for convenience and clarity, I'm going to call it St. Petersburg the entire time, um, acknowledging that through his childhood and most of growing up, it was, in fact, called Leningrad, but I'm not going to call it that just so that we don't have to go through that switch halfway through. So Putin grew up in St. Petersburg in a middle-class family, but the circumstances in which they lived, if they lived in the United States, we would probably think of them uh, as poor. They shared their apartment with two other families. Vladimir and his parents had just one room to themselves. Uh, but that living arrangement was very normal for the time. That was how people lived in St. Petersburg at the time. And by the way, how many people still live in Russia, uh, though conditions have improved considerably. Communal apartments are still lived in widely and, and definitely not an unknown phenomenon. Like I said, St. Petersburg was a gritty city and Vladimir Putin was a gritty kid. He was something of a hooligan. He spent a lot of time on the streets and he got into fights a lot. He was small, even now he's only five foot seven, and he's always been fairly thin. And he was probably bullied as a kid, so he developed something of a honey badger syndrome. He didn't care, he'd fight anyone. If you insulted him in the slightest or made even the smallest threat, Vladimir Putin was ready to throw down. So he got into a lot of fights and made a lot of trouble as a kid. Early in his life, he was a poor student. He was viewed as decently bright, but he was uninterested and disorganized. One of his teachers complained to Putin's father that little Vladimir wasn't living up to his potential. And I love his father's response because it sounds so Russian to me. Maybe this is a stereotype, but his father replied, quote, well, what can I do? Kill him or what? But no, uh, they didn't kill him. Uh, and he did eventually sort of turn his life around. Two things really turned it around for him. The first was he got involved in martial arts, specifically judo. Putin really loved martial arts and he was pretty darn good at it. And again, this was a big turning point for him. It introduced order and discipline into his life. The other big turning point for him was the release of a movie called The Shield and the Sword. It was based on a book of the same name, and it was about a Soviet secret agent in World War II who goes behind enemy lines in Nazi Germany. And it was a huge hit. It was a total phenomenon in the Soviet Union at the time. People went wild for it, and that included Vladimir Putin. He thought it was awesome. He was obsessed with it. And when he saw it, Putin decided that he wanted to be like the main character. So at age 16, he walks into a KGB office. And for those who don't know, the KGB was basically the Soviet equivalent of the CIA. It was their intelligence department, their spy organization. And Putin walks into the KGB office in St. Petersburg and says, hey, I want to be an agent. And obviously, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. You can't just go sign up to be a KGB spy any more than you can just go volunteer to be a CIA spy. But they kind of like this plucky kid. So an officer comes out and sits down with him for a few minutes. And Putin gets to ask him some questions. And he tells Putin that they only recruit qualified candidates from universities and from the army. So Putin says, okay, okay, well, tell me this. If I go to university, what would be the best thing to study to get into the KGB? And the officer tells him he should study law. So Vladimir Putin has his goal. He has got it all set out for him. He wants to be a secret agent for the KGB. And he was going to do everything he could to realize that dream. So immediately he started taking German classes and preparing to attend university to study law. And again, this is when his life flips 180 degrees. He goes from being a disorganized, disobedient, and lazy student to becoming an almost militantly disciplined one. 
He continues to obsess over martial arts, but now he dedicates almost all the rest of his time to studying for the university entrance exams. And he pulls it off. He gets into Leningrad State University, which was one of the elite universities in the Soviet Union at the time. And like the rest of his early life and career, his time there is somewhat unremarkable. He's a pretty good student, graduates in four years. The only somewhat remarkable thing is that in his fourth year, he is indeed recruited by the KGB to go work for them. So he graduates from Leningrad State University, and he starts working as a low-level spy. He goes to officer training and emerges as a counterintelligence first lieutenant. And counterintelligence meant he would not be going abroad, but rather staying in St. Petersburg. His job was to cultivate relationships with normal people and get them to turn in their neighbors and associates who might be saying or doing things that the Soviet Union did not approve of, or even potentially, you know, he's trying to catch any secret spies for the capitalist West that might be there in St. Petersburg. But the Soviet Union had a pretty tight grip on the country. There weren't a ton of people running around plotting revolution or spying for the USA, especially not in St. Petersburg. In the nine years that Putin was in the KGB in St. Petersburg, there was not one single spy caught. So at this point, Putin is doing some really unremarkable stuff. Uh, he's making reports, he's cultivating relationships, just generally making sure everyone stays in line. He'd probably like to be seeing more action. You know, he wanted to be this undercover action star that he saw in this movie. Uh, and he's not really getting to live that life, but he's not complaining about it. He's a company man. He's very loyal to the KGB. He's not exactly getting to live his dream, but he's a very loyal guy who believes in order and following the rules. So that's what he's doing. And he plugs along like that for nine years. There might've been a personal side to why he wasn't sent to an international post. The Soviet Union didn't like to send unmarried agents abroad because it was thought they could be seduced and then flipped into double agents or blackmailed. It was a liability to have unmarried agents in the field is what they thought. And at this point, Putin was still unmarried. He's 30, and for Russia at the time, this is pretty late in life to be unmarried. So that may have been holding him back. Um, but at the age of 30, he finally does get married. And just a year later, he's promoted to major and sent to the School of Foreign Intelligence in Moscow. It's basically a boot camp for foreign spies. And this looks like it's going to be his big break. He's going to get to live his secret agent dream. Well, while he's studying at this boot camp in Moscow... He comes home for a small break to St. Petersburg, and he gets in a stupid fight with some guys on the metro. And in this fight, he breaks his arm. And so he comes back with his broken arm, and they know he got in a fight. And this probably altered his trajectory at the KGB. As one of his friends later said, quote, He has a fault which is objectively bad for the special services. He takes risks. One should be more cautious, and he is not. To me, this is funny because in most ways, he was very calculated and consistent and disciplined, but he kept getting into fights. And it's the one area in which he doesn't really get his temper under control, kind of reverts to his hooligan ways. I think it's because he shares a common flaw with Napoleon, who said, quote, the French people need to support me with my flaws if they find in me some advantages. My flaw is being unable to bear insults. I think Putin, because he had grown up little, basically, and he had this sort of complex, he was also unable to bear insults. And so he gets in this stupid fight, and he had been hoping to be an undercover spy, to go to the capitalist West, and with his German skills, uh, be behind enemy lines. That would mean going to Switzerland, 
Austria, or West Germany. Remember, at the time, Germany was divided into West Germany, which was free and capitalist, and East Germany, which was communist. Well, he is sent to East Germany, to the city of Dresden. And this is not at all a prestigious post. It's a sideshow. Dresden just didn't matter. I mean, no one was spying on Dresden. There was no important work to be done. He's really just a paper pusher. But, you know, being the loyal, hardworking guy that he is, he puts his head down and gets to work. Ironically, he was valued in his office as someone who was solid and unambitious, someone who wasn't gunning for the top job. He just wanted to be there and get the job done. A colleague described him as, quote, a crystal clear person. In the nearly five years he was in Dresden, he climbs the ranks and eventually does become one of the commanding officers of this small KGB office there. But everything changed in 1989. Putin was still in Dresden when the Berlin Wall came down. It was a sign that the Soviet Union was breaking apart and losing its grip on East Germany. In Dresden, shortly thereafter, people took to the streets to celebrate and protest. They were thrilled that East Germany was moving toward becoming free and independent. And, of course, they're also upset and protesting about Russia's continued meddling. In East Germany, there was a German security and intelligence apparatus parallel to the KGB. So it's basically the German version of the KGB. And it's called the Stasi. The two worked hand in hand. And the Stasi had their offices in Dresden just down the street from the KGB offices because they coordinated so much. Well, as people are in the streets celebrating and protesting, one of the first things they do is break into the Stasi offices and ransack the place. Putin sees this and figures the KGB offices are next. And he's right. The crowd starts moving down the street toward their offices next. And he really doesn't want his office to get ransacked like the Stasi office. They have top secret confidential files that would be compromising if found and distributed. And he's a loyal company man. He doesn't want to see the indignity of the KGB headquarters being ransacked by a bunch of civilians. And, you know, also he doesn't want the very real damage that could occur to Russian intelligence and counterintelligence if all their files are taken and made public. And also it would be disastrous for his career if the Dresden offices were ransacked on his watch. So as more and more protesters continue to gather and they grow more and more raucous, he calls up the Soviet military base in Dresden and says, hey, we need some backup over here. And their reply is, well, we can't use force without authorization from Moscow. He says, okay, well then call it in and ask for authorization. But when he calls back a few minutes later, the officer in charge tells him they didn't hear back. Moscow is silent, he says. Putin felt totally betrayed by this. That sentence haunted him. Moscow is silent. He later said, quote, I had the feeling then that the country was no more, that it had disappeared. It became clear the union was ailing. It was a deadly, incurable disease called paralysis, a paralysis of power. And from then on, he was committed to doing all he could to ensure that Russia was never paralyzed or powerless again. That will be one of the continuing themes of his life. Well, the crowd is heating up and getting more and more animated outside the KGB headquarters. Putin is in very real danger. The crowd is obviously feeling upset and vengeful for the years of oppression they suffered under the thumb of the Soviets. And this is their way to take that out on the KGB. Things hadn't turned violent yet, but it was very possible that they could. And besides a locked gate and a few men with pistols, there was no defense at the KGB headquarters. They were basically unarmed. And so what will you do in this circumstance? There's a big mob gathering and shouting outside of your building. You have no defenses, disastrous consequences if they get in. You've got no one to turn to. The military has basically said no. You've got no backup. And there's hundreds of them, maybe thousands. 
and there's just a handful, you know, less than 20 of you. So this is what Putin does. He walks out of the building slowly and deliberately. He addresses the people at the head of the crowd. He doesn't shout, he speaks quietly, and he says, this house is strictly guarded. My soldiers have weapons and I gave them orders. If anyone enters the compound, they are to open fire. Then without another word, he turns around and calmly walks back inside. The crowd thinks better of it and they disperse and go elsewhere. It's a really gutsy bluff and it pays off. And I think it's really the first flash of greatness in Putin's life. And to be clear, it's nothing more than a quick flash. The story doesn't get told widely initially. The whole incident is lost in the bureaucratic shuffle back in Moscow because the Soviet Union is crumbling. It's about to collapse. They have bigger stuff to worry about than some random KGB office in Dresden, Germany. But it's the first time that he shows some real metal and you know determination and you get the feeling, okay, well, this might be a guy who, who's got more grit than, than your average Joe. Well, after this incident, the KGB offices in Dresden are not around for much longer. Uh, they close up shop, destroy the documents that they had there, and then everyone packs up and heads back to Russia. When Putin gets back, it's a very tough employment environment. The Soviet Union is collapsing around them, and he's not the only KGB agent back in town from foreign assignment that is looking for a new job. You know, all of these KGB offices are getting closed. Everyone is showing back up in Russia saying, okay, well, I need a job, and there's just not enough KGB positions for all of them. And Putin isn't exactly high on the totem pole, so there's no new position waiting for him. He's just got to go out and look for something. He ends up back in St. Petersburg, and this is the year 1991, and he takes a position at the university there. He's spying on students and recruiting new KGB agents. It's a total dead end in terms of his career at the KGB, there's no one he's working for, no visibility, no chance of promotion. So a dead end, but I mean, he doesn't care. Who cares about your career in the KGB at a point like this? The Soviet Union is falling apart. There's not going to be a KGB for much longer. He's just happy to have a job and get paid, but he's not in that job for very long. This is a time of really rapid transition for Russia. Everything is changing. And in St. Petersburg, they're starting to have elections for the very first time. The newly elected mayor is a guy by the name of Anatoly Sobchak. He's a reformer who talks a really good game on democratic and free market reforms. But he also recognized the need to utilize the old state apparatus to govern. One problem with a lot of revolutions is everyone's excited. You throw out the old guys and put in new guys. But now you don't have anyone who knows how to do the basic governing, to keep the lights on and the trains running and the sewers flowing and all of that. And Sobchak doesn't want to make that mistake. So he's trying to co-op the old Soviet state. So he's supposed to be this reformer, but a lot of the people that he employs are old guard Soviets, KGB guys, and communist bureaucrats. One of the first KGB guys that Sobchak hires is Vladimir Putin, who he wants to act as a liaison between him and the KGB, among other duties. His official position is Advisor on International Affairs. And the next year, he gets promoted to head of the Committee for External Relations. Now, those might sound like important positions, but the truth is, they really weren't. Um, when Sobchak wrote his memoir of this period of his life, he didn't include a single word about Vladimir Putin. That's how unimportant his position was. But he does slowly rise in Sobchak's administration. And why? Well, 
He was known as a brutally hard worker. He was efficient and tireless. And just like in the KGB, he was valued as someone who was reliable because he was not ambitious. He seemed like a loyal, humble, quiet guy who kept his head down. You didn't have to worry about him making a show and then trying to run against you for mayor. As his boss, you knew you would get all the credit for everything Putin did. So he starts rising within the administration. And three years later, in 1994, Putin becomes the deputy mayor. But as Putin rises within the administration, he becomes a little bit of a public relations problem. Why? Well, Russia is undergoing massive change. People have finally shaken off the fetters of communism, and they're pretty upset with the people who were complicit in Soviet oppression for all those years. And that obviously includes the KGB. It especially includes the KGB. So it doesn't look good to employ someone who has been a KGB officer for his entire career. People remember the disappearances and the executions and the neighbors spying on neighbors and all of that. And they want to move forward away from all of that, not back towards the old regime. Well, Putin gets sort of outed as a former KGB officer. He goes on television and is interviewed about it. And his response is really interesting. I would call it, at least for me when reading through his biographies, I would call it his second real flash of brilliance. He doesn't apologize. He says that he was in foreign intelligence, not in domestic repression, which is not entirely true, but whatever. Uh, and he says the KGB became a monster that no longer carried out the tasks for which it was created, but that that's not his fault. He was just serving the state and trying to serve its best interests abroad. So the interviewer asks, so you don't repent of your past? And he says, no, I don't repent. I repent of crimes. I did not commit any crimes. He goes on to say that far from disqualifying him for public service, his background in government would be a benefit as he served the people of St. Petersburg. It's really bold, even brazen, but it's really effective. And it works. The whole scandal blows over. And I think this is something that, that people should learn from. Many people try to hide or cover their weaknesses, but it's generally better to lean into them, just own them, flip them into strengths. Ronald Reagan, when he ran for re-election against Walter Mondale, was one of the oldest men to ever have run for president. In one debate, he was asked about his age and whether there was any doubt in his mind that he would have the energy to be president at his advanced age. He responded, quote, not at all. And I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. And the response brought the house down. Even his opponent at the debate was dying of laughter. It was brilliant. Not only was it funny, but it shifted one of his biggest weaknesses, his age and frailty, into a strength. Now it was about his wisdom and experience and about his opponent's lack thereof. And this brilliant tactic was basically the same one Putin is using. Yes, I was a KGB officer. That's going to be a big help to me as I try to help govern this city. It's not enough to deny and protect your weaknesses. It's much more effective to accept and acknowledge them and then use them as strengths. Are you lazy? Recast it as clever. You do a better job by working smart while others slave away to no effect. Do you have a temper? Recast it as passionate. Others might display emotion too if they cared about the issue as much as you do. In fact, Putin's background as a KGB man who projects strength and wants to preserve Russian power would end up being one of his greatest strengths. It's some pretty brilliant verbal jujitsu, but for now, he's sort of just scratching the surface of his ability to communicate in this way. One other thing about his working style at this time, 
He has an attribute that is similar to the other people I've covered on this podcast. He's insanely good at compartmentalization. There's an incident where his wife gets in a car accident and cracks three vertebrae and he comes to the hospital and barely checks on her. He goes in, sees that she's not going to die and goes back to work. It's not that he doesn't care or doesn't love her, but once he figures out that she's not going to die, she's going to be taken care of, he compartmentalizes that section of his life and goes back to work. It reminds me a lot of both Napoleon and Steve Jobs, and it is probably a top three important attribute to greatness. This meta focus. Can you compartmentalize your mind and remove distractions? Can you set aside pressing issues because this just isn't the time to think about them? Jobs and Bonaparte were insanely good at that, and it turns out Putin is as well. Well, Putin's boss, Sobchak, was this rising star. In some ways, he's the anti-Putin. He's not great at getting things done, but he's a very smooth talker, and he's a real people person. He's a classic politician. He becomes the second most famous politician in Russia after the president, and there's a ton of momentum and excitement around him because he's supposed to be this important reformer. But it doesn't last. He blows it. I mentioned his policy of using experienced bureaucrats. It's a pretty good idea, but he took it way too far. And the result was an administration with a bunch of ex-Soviets and KGB guys that ended up not being very different from the system that preceded it. It was incredibly corrupt. So in 1996, Sobchak loses re-election. This leaves Vladimir Putin once again without a job or any serious prospects. And he doesn't really have anywhere to go, no natural path to follow. He strongly considers opening up a law practice or even becoming a judo teacher. He's 43 years old. And you'd think if someone was going to achieve true greatness in their life, they would have already accomplished something by 43 or at least be on track. But here Putin is out of a job, strongly considering becoming a judo teacher. But he doesn't. Instead, he gets offered a job in Moscow in the federal government. He's hired as the deputy chief of the presidential property management department. Why he was extended this offer is a bit of a mystery since he wasn't particularly well connected in Moscow, but he still had a reputation as someone who wasn't corrupt, although that reputation probably wasn't totally deserved, and he had a decent resume. Plus, the deputy chief of the presidential property management department, department isn't exactly the limelight. I can barely say it. It's a pretty low-level position. I mean, quick question for you. Who is the head of managing presidential property in the United States or in your home country if you don't live in the States? You probably have no idea. I have no idea. And he's not even the head. He is the deputy chief. So it's a pretty humble beginning for his career in Moscow. But then we start to see a familiar pattern start to reemerge. He consistently gets promoted. Not a huge rising star, not a super fast rise, but he consistently does a good job and gets higher and higher appointments until finally in 1998, he gets appointed to become head of the FSB, which is Russia's new intelligence organization. The KGB had been disbanded and the FSB is the institution that took its place. There were a bunch of old KGB guys in the FSB who resisted the president, Boris Yeltsin, and some of the reforms he was trying to push through. They wanted to do it the old way. So at this point, the FSB was sort of a KGB light it was still Soviet-style bureaucracy, bloated and inefficient and very, very corrupt. So the president, Boris Yeltsin, needed someone who would be loyal, someone who was disciplined, 
and could resist corruption, and someone with an understanding of the intelligence services. Vladimir Putin seemed like an excellent choice, but Putin was actually reluctant to take the position. He was the guy in the background getting things done. He didn't want to be the face of this big organization, and he was tired of all the secrecy inherent in being involved with a spy agency. But being the loyal employee that he was, he accepted the appointment. And he was, in fact, a pretty good choice. He gets in there and he follows Yeltsin's orders. He fires a bunch of officers, abolishes outdated departments, and replaces them with new and needed ones, and he roots out the worst of the offenders in terms of corruption. And he's pretty good at all this because he's used to staying out of the fray, keeping his head above the politics and avoiding all those sort of entanglements. He's a one-track guy. He's loyal, he's a company man, and he's there to do his job. And as head of the FSB, he really starts ingratiating himself with Boris Yeltsin. The first reason is the obvious one. He's doing a good job. There's one other thing he does that's very important to Yeltsin. There are some old regime hardliners who are very upset with Yeltsin, so there are rumors of a coup and a government overthrow. And Yeltsin needs someone else to go on TV and calm people's nerves and discourage the plotters from turning these grumblings and plans into an actual coup attempt. So he leans on Putin. Putin goes on TV and in his very straightforward, unemotional, almost robotic manner, gives a summary of the situation and declares in part, those who violate the Constitution and try to undermine Russia's state system by unconstitutional methods with the use of force will run up against appropriate resistance. This is something you can be sure of. This has the effect of restoring confidence in the government and discouraging the plotters. And Putin's cool-headed and able handling of the situation earns him some more points, some more credit with Yeltsin. And the timing is good, because at this point, Yeltsin is nearing the end of his second term as president. And constitutionally, he couldn't run again. Now, throughout Russian history, it was very common to see outgoing rulers prosecuted and even executed once they're out of power. So Yeltsin was worried about this, and his number one priority when deciding who to support to succeed him as president was, you know, who's going to be loyal to me? Who can I be sure will protect my personal safety and keep me out of jail? And he felt like that person would be Vladimir Putin, who, again, is known for his loyalty. So he names Putin to be his prime minister. Prime Minister spot was the second most important position in Russia. It would be a highly visible role and give Putin a chance to practice governing and get in front of the Russian voters so that he would be familiar to them. This appointment not only installs him in a very important position in its own right, but it also gives him the inside track on running for president. Now, Yeltsin keeps the full extent of his plan a secret at first. Of course, he doesn't keep it a secret that he's naming Putin prime minister, you can't keep that under wraps. He's the prime minister. Everyone knows that. But he keeps it a secret that he wants Putin to succeed him as president. And while in retrospect, it might seem obvious, at the time, it seemed anything but. Remember, Putin had never held elected office at all. He had held some political positions, but they were all appointed. And Putin was not exactly your typical sweet-talking, very personable politician. He did not resemble a politician at all. People thought, even if Putin did run for president, you know, he's not going to be a very formidable opponent because he's not a natural politician. Uh, so he is appointed as prime minister, but Yeltsin doesn't tell anyone that he's going to support Putin to run for president. Now, when Putin stepped in as prime minister, he was basically running the government. Yeltsin was old and in poor health, and he was still setting the agenda to a large extent, but Putin was functionally in control of the day-to-day -day governing of the government in Russia. 
Now, at the time, Russia was fighting a war within its own borders in a region called Chechnya. Now, Russia is a majority Christian, specifically Russian Orthodox nation. But the region of Chechnya is in Russia and is majority Muslim. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, some people decided to rise up there to try to break off and become independent. Russia was, of course, not okay with this. So they sent in troops. There was an insurgency. And so Russia was fighting a war to keep Chechnya as a part of Russia. Remember, Putin is someone who believes in law and order. He lamented that Russia had fallen from power so precipitously since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Remember when he was in charge of the KGB office in Dresden and he called for backup and the response was, Moscow is silent? He was still haunted by that. So the fact that there were these separatists in Chechnya trying to break apart the country enraged him. And what enraged him even further is that the war wasn't going particularly well. It was a counterinsurgency quagmire like Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam. So the first thing he does as prime minister is go down to the war zone. It's a really compelling image and sets him apart from Yeltsin, who, being the old man that he is, could never don fatigues and go to an active military zone. Putin declares, quote, we're going to bang the hell out of these bandits. He decides they're going all in. You know, if we're going to fight, we're going to really fight. The war in Chechnya was deeply unpopular in Russia. Again, it was like Vietnam or Iraq in that way. And so it was assumed at the time that this move to drop more bombs and send in more troops would be really unpopular. So why did Putin do this less than a year before he was supposed to run for president? Well, no one took his prospects of becoming president very seriously, and it's likely that he didn't either. He probably made the decision to step up the war in Chechnya because he believed it was the right thing to do. He wanted to see a strong Russia. He didn't want to see its disillusion and parts of it breaking off. When he made the decision to step up the forces and number of bombs dropped in Chechnya, he was also highly criticized and questioned by the press. Understandably, with an increase in force comes an increase in casualties, both military and civilian. Even under the best of circumstances, in the fog of war, there can be a lot of mistakes. This was not the best of circumstances. There was a lot of hatred and acrimony on both sides of the conflict. The collateral damage from this escalation was creating a really brutal humanitarian nightmare. Schools and hospitals were getting bombed along with military targets. So the press is really getting after him on this decision. And after a few questions, he finally says, quote, I am tired of answering these questions. Russian aircraft are only striking terrorist camps. We will go after them wherever they are. If, pardon me, we find them in the toilet, we will waste them in the outhouse. And then something surprising starts happening. Putin's popularity starts skyrocketing. The war in Chechnya was deeply unpopular, yes. But that was in part because the Russian forces were losing, which was humiliating to everyday Russians. They used to be a part of something special, a global superpower that could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States. Now, it seemed like they couldn't even beat a ragtag group of poorly armed rebels. Putin is promising a real chance at victory. And the early signs were that it was working to a certain degree. And that reflects really well on Putin. Furthermore, he seemed like a bastion of authority, power, and competence in a time of enormous change and upheaval for Russia. All the old institutions were crumbling and collapsing. On the one hand, people were happy to see the repressive times of the Soviet Union gone. But on the other hand, once the initial thrill of political and economic freedom wore off, people were left in a situation where the economy was still not great 
And added to that is a great deal of uncertainty. At least during the Soviet Union, you knew what to expect, even if what you expected was pretty crappy. Now people have no idea what to expect. Are they going to have the same government in a year? Is there going to be food in the grocery store next week? Everything seemed like it was in flux. And in the middle of this environment, Putin strides in, looks authoritative, and says, in effect, Russia will not be defeated. We're going to bang the hell out of these terrorists. And people go wild for it. People love it. So now things are going great for Yeltsin's plan to have Putin be the new president. His popularity is rising quickly, but Yeltsin had a knack for showmanship and he didn't want to leave anything to chance. So he pulls off one last brilliant move as president. In Russia, New Year's is the biggest holiday by far. It's like Christmas, New Year's, Halloween, and the 4th of July all rolled into one big holiday. And there's a tradition for the president to address the nation in a big televised address that everyone watches. The address of 1999 is particularly important and anticipated. For one thing, it's the start of a new millennium, the start of the 2000s. Obviously, this felt like a big moment. Secondly, as I said, it was a time of a lot of change for Russia, and this was the end of Yeltsin's presidency. The election was going to be held in June of the next year, and Yeltsin couldn't run again. And so this is going to mark the first democratic, peaceful transfer of power in Russia's history. And this would be the last New Year's Eve speech of their first president. So during this big address, Yeltsin gets up and says, quote, I have heard people say more than once that Yeltsin would cling to power as long as possible, that he would never let go. That is a lie. Then he goes on to say that he was going to peacefully step down, but that he wasn't going to wait until June. He said, quote, Russia should enter the new millennium with new politicians, new faces, new people who are intelligent, strong, and energetic, while we, those who have been in power for many, many years, must leave. He announces that he's stepping down effective immediately and naming Vladimir Putin as his successor and interim president. Then Putin gets up and gives a short speech. It's not very memorable, but that doesn't really matter. The image of him addressing the nation a new leader for a new millennium is enough. It's brilliant. It's absolutely genius propaganda. Putin's popularity had already been rising, but now he gets this big boost from this incredible show, this, this piece of propaganda. Furthermore, this move gives him a few months to be president, to be the incumbent before the election is actually held. And so Putin's popularity skyrockets even further. When Putin runs for president, he basically has no coherent platform. He doesn't even really campaign. His form of campaigning is to go down to the war zone and be filmed interacting with Russian troops. He stays above the fray and acts presidential. He refuses to go to televised debates, saying, quote, These videos are advertising. I will not be trying to find out in the course of my election which is more important, Tampax or Snickers. His only campaign platform is vague promises of a return to Russian greatness and positions on nonpartisan issues such as raising pensions for veterans of World War II, and coming down hard on crime and corruption. When election day arrives a few months later, it's anticlimactic. He is elected in a landslide in a free and fair election. In 1995, Vladimir Putin was an unemployed former bureaucrat who was thinking about becoming a judo teacher. At the start of the new millennium, he became the most powerful man in Russia, the head of the second largest military in the world with thousands of nuclear weapons at his disposal. And unbeknownst to the world, he would not be just another president, but a dominating force who loomed large over Russia for decades. The era of Putin had begun. 
So let's take a step back and analyze how this came to be. How do we explain Putin's rise? At first glance, the primary factor that comes to mind is luck. It kind of just seems like right place, right time. He lucked into his positions in the mayor's office in St. Petersburg and the presidential administration in Moscow. And he just happened to be the most solid, loyal-seeming guy around when Yeltsin was looking for a successor who would make sure he wasn't prosecuted or harmed. And definitely, there was an element of luck. In any story of success, there invariably is an element of luck involved. And this is obviously no different. Furthermore, Vladimir Putin does, in my mind, seem like the kind of guy who, if things had gone just a little bit differently, might have lived a completely normal life. But that's only a small piece of the puzzle. He was able to take advantage of those fortunate circumstances in a way that few others could have. So what were those attributes, those strategies that enabled his rise? The first is consistency. Putin is unbelievably consistent, and he has been since Judo pulled him off the streets of St. Petersburg and turned him into a disciplined person. You don't get big highs and big lows with Putin. He quietly and efficiently gets the job done. I think consistency is one of the most underrated attributes a human can have. Let me give you an example of two investors. They both start with $100,000. The first investor is consistent. He grows his money by 10% every year without fail. The second investor is a risky superstar. He grows his money by 30%, but the next year his risky bets don't pay off and he loses 10%. And it goes on like this in perpetuity. Now, it might seem like these are roughly equal. Take any two-year span and the one has growth of 10% for two years, which adds up to 20%. And the other has growth of 30% one year minus losses of 10% the next year. And that also sort of adds up to 20% as well. So they seem relatively equal at first glance. But because of the way that compound interest works, that's not the effect at all. Over the course of a 50-year career, the consistent investor will have grown his $100,000 to nearly $12 million, while the inconsistent, flashy investor will have grown his $100,000 to less than half of that. This is the reason that Warren Buffett's rules for investing are rule number one, never lose money. And rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Just showing up and being reliable over a very long period of time is surprisingly difficult. And when you pull it off, it's extremely valuable. Putin is evidence of that. So when you evaluate habits, routines, jobs, opportunities, coworkers, whatever, ask yourself, what's sustainable? What am I going to be able to do consistently and reliably over a long period of time? Because consistency is what will lead to big results. The second thing I'll point out is his willingness to stay out of the spotlight and make others look good. Obviously, this is a podcast for ambitious people, and ambitious people, unsurprisingly, are often anxious to receive credit for the things they do. But drawing attention to yourself often hurts you in the long run. Those who achieve great things are often those who are willing to toil in secret and deflect the credit to someone else. You're playing the long game. It all bounces back to you in the end. Putin made the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak, look good as he took on much of the grunt work and stayed in the background, letting the mayor take credit for the things that he was accomplishing. Putin did it again for the president of the federal government, quietly carrying out needed reforms and difficult initiatives, all the while staying out of the spotlight and letting President Yeltsin get the credit. This all came back to him in the end, as Sobchak was able to recommend and endorse him for service in the federal government, and Yeltsin promoted him through the ranks, eventually appointing him prime minister and then interim president. So if you want to find success and achieve greatness, often a good place to start is to ask yourself who you can make look good. Not who you can suck up to, Putin was never much of a suck up, 
but who you can actually make look good through your hard work. As Harry Truman said, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. Putin worried more about his accomplishments than his position, and ironically, he ended up in the top position because of it. Okay, well, this is the end for part one on Vladimir Putin, but it's not the end for our friend Vladimir. We have yet to see how it is that he consolidates power, elevates Russia to a first-rate geopolitical power, and acquires billions of dollars, making himself one of the wealthiest people in the entire world. Next episode, you'll get to see Putin go dark as he starts having political opponents and dissidents jailed, tortured, and assassinated. As always, you can find links, show notes, and more at httotw.com. And again, that's just short for how to take over the world, httotw. Or follow me on Twitter at httotw. Uh, hope you'll join me next time for part two of the life of Vladimir Putin on how to take over the world. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.